You're listening to Ecclesia, a study of church history, part of the podcast ministry of Sycamore Baptist Church in Decatur, Texas. My name is CJ Frazier. I'm the senior pastor here at Sycamore Baptist Church, and I would like to personally invite you to join us for worship. For more information about our church, please visit www.sycamoredecatur.com. And now, we hope you enjoy this session's podcast on church history. This is our ninth session now in church history, and you can see by the title that we're going to look, starting where we left off last week at Nicaea, and we're going to work our way to uh, the second major council that met, which was the Council of Constantinople. And um, as we get started this evening, I've got a question for you. Homoousius or homoousius? Anybody answer? Anybody remember? Which is the right one? Homoousius or homoousius? There you go. Marvin got it right. Homoousius. The son is of the same substance as the father. He's not just like the father. Jesus is of the same substance. He's not a lesser being. He isn't a created being who is some other version of God. Jesus is God. And so the reason why I ask that is, number one, for retention, obviously. But secondly, because that issue of the nature of Jesus, it doesn't go away after 325 A.D. I wish it would have. Um, But sadly, just as the same is true today, people did not just adopt orthodox belief about Jesus just because a bunch of people got together and said, hey, this is what the scriptures say is the truth about Jesus. And so this evening, what we're really going to look at is how church history plays out from the time of 325 A.D. up through the next century and how people will come behind those who met at Nicaea in order to defend the true faith and defend the truth of who Jesus was. And so we're going to start by examining a man that we talked about last week. You'll remember his nickname was the Black Dwarf, this man named Athanasius of Alexandria. And really, the Black Dwarf was was a derogatory nickname that he earned at the Council of Nicaea. He was a short, dark-skinned man from Alexandria, Egypt, this Athanasius was. And I will just remind us that this first council that met, met at Nicaea, you can see there that it was just south of Constantinople, which Constantinople was the capital of Rome in the east. You had Rome, the city itself in the west, but Constantine desiring to establish a Christian city and a Christian capital in the east had founded Constantinople. He had had this council convened in 325 AD, and you'll remember that the church at that point adopted what we would say is a biblically true statement concerning the nature of Jesus that he is of the same substance with the father that he's that him and that he and the father are one just as Jesus himself had said and as i mentioned Athanasius of Alexandria really stands at the center of this great debate that took place in Nicaea Athanasius had helped draft the language of that Nicene Creed as we looked at that last week. I'll remind you, he lived from about 296 to 373, with the, the council having taken place in 323 AD. Athanasius would then, or excuse me, 325 AD. Athanasius would then live the next five decades of his life defending what the church had said to be true of Jesus at Nicaea. As you can imagine, this man quickly became a household name. Everybody knew who Athanasius was 
after the Council of Nicaea. It's kind of like to the victor go the spoils because the opinion of, of Athanasius and those who were on his side, because it was the prevailing opinion, it wasn't long before the whole empire virtually knew of his name. But what you might be interested to find out about Athanasius is, is kind of something we hit on last week, is that he spent most of the rest of his days, now again, about five decades, 50 years of his life, he spends a lot of that time actually exiled out of his home base of operations and ministry. He was exiled sev- several times from, from the city in which he ministered. And the, one of the reasons for that was because soon after this council, those who lost were not happy that they had lost. And because they couldn't beat Athanasius and those who had proclaimed the truth through debate, they sought to defeat them through lies. And so those who were on the side of Arius, the Arians, those people decided to spread lies about Athanasius and and others, but Athanasius specifically, they went so far as to say that he had even cut off a man's hand and then subsequently murdered him. So they they made up this whole big story about him. Well, as you can imagine, the emperor, when he got word of this, he wanted to investigate and see whether or not this was true. So he ordered for Athanasius to stand trial in the city of Tyre. You'll remember that name even from the New Testament in Tyre. Athanasius had to go and stand trial. And there's several different accounts as to what took place there. I'll just give you one that that perhaps is is more legend than truth. It is perhaps an embellished story. But according to to one such legend or lore uh, that was put forth from that trial, Athanasius, in in order to um, acquit himself, brought in a man with a hood over his head, and he had the council uh, place the man in front of them. And in his defense, he said, I want you to take the hood off of this man. They took the hood off of the man, and it was the man that he was claimed to have killed. He was alive there at the, at the trial. And he said, okay, um, go ahead and pull out your hand. And so he pulled out his hand, and he showed them that he had his hand still. To which those who were accusing Athanasius said, it was the other hand. And so he said, pull out the other hand. He pulled out the other hands. And he said, now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a monster that had three hands. And so he, uh, he defended himself in that way, supposedly. Again, that could be more, more legend than it could be fact. But at any rate, it was found that Athanasius was not guilty of murdering or cutting off the hand of the man that he was said to have murdered or cut his hand off of. But nonetheless, Athanasius had such great opponents, really close to the emperor, that he wanted to make sure and clear his name before Constantine himself. And so the, this story is actually true. It, it, is, it is verifiable that Athanasius one day ambushes Emperor Constantine as he's going in procession down the street, and he grabs his horse's bridle, and he will not let him go any farther until he agrees to meet with him. Because Athanasius wanted to clear his name. And Constantine didn't really know what to think about that. He thought that it was really a dangerous move on the part of Athanasius. And <clears throat> to be honest, it really didn't go a long way to help clear Athanasius of the rumors that were, that were circulating around him. Constantine thought, well, if this man's willing to jump out in front of a horse in order to stop me, perhaps he is capable of some of the things that are taking, uh, that are taking place in the rumor mill. What you also need to know is that Constantine who, as I I mentioned in weeks past, was a man who was kind of up and down in his theology. He was committed to Jesus, or at least the Jesus that the Christians worshipped, but his convictions were rather shallow. 
And sadly enough, toward the end of his life, Constantine ends up taking, uh, taking influence from political religious advisors who were from the Arian party, from the party that had lost in the Council of Nicaea, from those who said that Jesus was just a lesser form of God or a creation of God. One of the main uh, political religious advisors of Nicodemus was of Nicodemus, excuse me, of Constantine, was a, a man named Eusebius of Nicodemia, and he was he was a man who taught that this was true of Jesus, that he was a creation of God. And so you can see how things got really complicated really quickly for Athanasius. Constantine would never truly take his side. And so because of that, for the rest of Constantine's life, Athanasius was really not on his good side. Well, after Athanasius, there would subsequently be others who would need to take up the mantle and to run with it. Uh, Athanasius, as you see, dies in 373 AD, um, and Constantine himself had died in 361 AD. And so as you can imagine, it would be imperative for there to be a new generation of influential and bold church leaders who would rise up for the sake of what is true about Jesus. And praise be to God, there was a group of at least three men that we know to be uh, the group called the Cappadocians. And so we'll talk about them next here for just a moment. The Cappadocians, as you may you know, examine from their name, lived in this area called Cappadocia. You can read about Cappadocia even in uh, at least one of the New Testament letters. I believe Peter, in one of the letters that he's writing to those who are in Asia Minor, I think Cappadocia is actually one of those areas in Asia Minor that's mentioned there in, in the letter of 1 Peter. But Cappadocia, as you can see on your map there, it was just west of Constantinople. It was this area that occupies present-day Turkey. And that's where these three men that we're going to consider this evening, that's the place that they called home. Again, this is present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as it was known uh, back in those days, the region of Asia Minor. The first man that we'll consider is a man named Basil, or Basil. Uh, Basil, I think, is the, probably the more correct way to say his name. Basil of Caesarea. You can see there that he lived from around 329 to 379 A.D. And his nickname, uh, this is pretty awesome. I wish I could get this nickname. His nickname was Basil the Great. Don't you wish somebody called you by your first name, the Great? That would be really, really cool. That's how he was remembered by the church. What's interesting about Basil is that he did not desire greatness. He was not somebody who was looking to be influential. He was not someone who wanted to be in the spotlight. If anything, he desired to retreat into the desert to become a monk. That was a very popular uh, religious stance to take at this time. There were many Christians who, out of their piety, desired to be desert monks. They would go into the desert, never get married, study the Bible, and die. That was their entire life. Sounds strange to us, but this was a noble life that these people would seek to attain to. Um, this actually also goes after a principle in theology that's known as asceticism. Now, you don't necessarily need to, to remember the word asceticism, but basically what these people de desired was to live a life where they voluntarily gave things up, where they set things aside, where they didn't chase after worldly pursuits, worldly pleasures, or worldly comforts, and they did so so that they could experience Christianity in its fullness, that they could experience dependence upon Jesus in its fullness. So we kind of laugh at the idea today or think that it's kind of a weird hermit-style life to live, but these men had noble reasons and, and very you know, altruistic reasons for doing what they did. 
And Basil of Caesarea was certainly one of those. He studied in several different places, among them Egypt, Palestine, other areas as well. Even though he didn't desire it, he was eventually ordained as a presbyter. Now, I'll remind you, a presbyter was like the pastor of a local church back during this time. He didn't want that. He didn't want to be a pastor, but he was ordained as one anyway. I guess back then you didn't get much of a say. People just said, hey, you're going to be a pastor whether you want to be or not. And eventually, when the bishop of Caesarea died, he was the one who was elected to take his place. So reminder, there's presbyters in a city, and then there's bishops, and bishops are like the pastor who oversees the entire city, who oversees all the pastors within that city. Now, what you need to know is that the previous bishop, as well as the current emperor during this time, who was an emperor by the name of Valens, both of them were strict Arians, which meant that they opposed what was true about Jesus. They said that he was like God, but he wasn't necessarily the same as God. He was a creation of God. So you have these people that are antagonistic toward the truth who are in places of authority. Well, interestingly enough, that was not the take of Basil of Caesarea. He was a committed, uh, he was committed to the, to the cause of Athanasius and others and those who had met at Nicaea. He believed what was true about Jesus. And so what do you think his ministry was all about? Well, it was all about spreading that truth. And so Caesarea, this influential city there in Asia Minor, it becomes a place that is now open and embracing of the truth yet again, even though it had been um, antagonistic toward it for a while because of those who were in rule. Now, what you also need to know about this man is that his ministry was also very concerned with the poor. And so he and a friend of his that we'll talk about here in just a moment, they worked together, they collaborated together in order to minister to the poor of Caesarea. In fact, they even uh, renamed the, the, the area inside of Caesarea where this man ministered after him. They kind of gave, gave him the, the city that would kind of translate into Little Basil, this place that, that, he, that he ministered in where the poor were, were taken care of and the needy were ministered to. Basil definitely had that as the centerpiece of his ministry. Well, the next one of the Cappadocians that we need to talk about is the brother of Basil. And you'll need to remember that this one is his brother because there's another Gregory that we're going to talk about right behind him. So don't get the two confused. This first Gregory is Gregory of Nyssa. You can see that he lived from about 335 to 394 AD. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa, as I mentioned, the brother of Basil, was much different than his brother. In fact, one church historian says that he was, quote, of a completely different temperament than his older brother. He was, his older brother was tempestuous, inflexible, and even arrogant. On the other hand, Gregory preferred silence, solitude, and anonymity, close quote. So just as it is many times with siblings, they were like light and dark, oil and water. They were different as day and night. But interestingly enough, God used both of them in mighty ways. Gregory, although he himself, yet again, did not desire greatness for himself, it seemed as if God had a plan for him that went beyond anything that he ever looked for for himself. Now, Gregory was unlike his brother in that he did not initially seek to become a monk. In fact, he got married. He had married a young woman. And at some point in their marriage, probably pretty early on, she ends up dying. We're not exactly certain what happened, but based upon what Gregory of Nyssa would later say, 
He forsook marriage after the death of his wife because he could not bear to get married again, watch his wife give birth, and then die. So perhaps she died giving birth is what we, we kind of believe about him. Well, Gregory, because of this, because he experienced this trauma in his life, he now decides, well, maybe big brother's life is the life that I want to live. Maybe I want to go live out in the desert, and I want to be a monk as well. Um, that's, that's kind of the attitude that he adopted. And so he decides that he's going to take on the life of a monk as well. And as you can imagine, that life did not include at any point becoming a presbyter, a pastor. But just like his older brother, guess what ends up happening to him? He ends up being forced into the pastorate. But the ironic thing about this is, I love this, guess who forced him into it? His older brother, Basil. He forced him into the pastorate. Uh, it's funny, you know, because Basil had been forced into it himself. And what ends up happening with Gregory is that he's going to end up outliving both Gregory and the Emperor Valens at the time. I, I remember I told you that the emperor during this day was an emperor who embraced false doctrine. Well, Gregory outlives both of them. That's going to be a significant point of fact as we consider um, what ends up happening later on down the line. But what you need to know about Gregory of Nyssa is that he ends up becoming one of the greatest defenders of the Nicene position. Now, I'll remind you, the Council of Nicaea was back in 325. Gregory isn't born until 10 years later, but he ends up living almost into the, the 5th century. So here's this man who's going to virtually, through all of the 4th century, continue carrying the torch that Athanasius and others had lit at Nicaea. Gregory was going to be the one who would do that. Well, finally, the third of the Cappadocians is another Gregory. Don't get him confused with Gregory of Nyssa, even though the town that he's from also starts with an N and is kind of difficult to say. Uh, Nazianzus is, I believe, how you pronounce that. Nazianzus, Gregory of Nazianzus. And he lived from about 330 to 389 AD. Again, he's not related to the previous Gregory or to his brother Basil, but to complicate matters, he and Basil had become good friends as they had learned together in school. So during the time when Basil was off traveling and learning, he had met Gregory of Nazianzus, and the two became really good friends. Now, Gregory, he also was given a nickname, and his nickname was Gregory the Theologian. That makes him sound really academic and smart, doesn't it? But that was the nickname that, that, he, was, that he was given. Now, he also spent some time studying not only in uh, the places where Basil had studied, perhaps, but also in Athens. And he, too, like the previous men before him, guess what kind of life he decided he wanted to take on? He wanted to become a monk. So here's this third of the three men who wants to become a monk, and guess what he also did not want to become? A pastor. There are so many men who have run from becoming a pastor, but I know one thing is for certain, that all the people that I know that have ever run from it have found themselves giving over and surrendering to it at some point because the Lord uh, desired it for them. And so uh, Basil ends up putting this man over a small congregation in, uh, in a little bitty city that, that was so unknown that history doesn't even really remember it that well. But Gregory, rather than embracing the position that had been given to him by Basil, he instead resents him for it. And the two never really restored their relationship. It's kind of a sad part of the story. The two never really were able to recover from the tiff that took place whenever Basil put him over this small congregation. 
But after Basil dies, Gregory then moves to the city of Constantinople. You remember Constantinople is very important because it is the new Roman capital in the eastern region of Rome. It's a Christian city. Well, Gregory of or Gregory the theologian, as I'll call him for the sake of simplicity, he moves to he moves to Constantinople, and he does so in a very timely manner. He moves there in 379 AD, somewhere in, in that, that time frame. Well, wouldn't you know it that according to the providence of God, something major would happen during this time that would completely shake up not only Gregory's life, but the life of the church. You'll remember that an emperor named Valens had been in control. Between he and Constantine, there were several different emperors. It was kind of a back and forth for a while after Constantine died to see who would obtain power. So you have several emperors come and go. Constantine had three sons, and guess what each of those three wanted? They each wanted to be emperor. They each wanted the empire. One of them eventually took over uh, for Constantine. He was eventually... uh, he eventually died and, and gave, it, gave up the, the right to emperor to another man, so on, so, so forth. Until we get to 379 AD, we are in the city of Constantinople, and Valens has also died. And an emperor comes in behind him, and his name is Theodosius. And what you need to know about Theodosius is, whereas the emperors who came before him for the most part were favorable toward the Arian position, the false doctrine that had lost at Nicaea, Theodosius is favorable toward the Nicene position, the position of Athanasius, the right position, the orthodox position. And so it is with that in mind that that he now comes to Constantinople. He comes to this city in order to show himself to be emperor there. And it's not long before he hears about this man known as Gregory the theologian. And because Gregory had been a great teacher, because his popularity had spread throughout Constantinople, Uh, Theodosius decides that he is going to meet Gregory, and he's going to walk around the city with him, get to know him a little bit. And according to the story, and this probably is is the true account of how it happened, as the two are walking through some of the most renowned places in Constantinople, namely the Hagia Sophia, you'll remember that, that was one of the original wonders of the world. As they're walking about through Constantinople, and people see Uh, the emperor rubbing elbows with this well-known Christian teacher. They start chanting his name, Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. We want Gregory. And so Theodosius, because he has the power, he says, okay, Gregory, these people think so much of you. I'm going to make you the bishop of this city. Again, here's a man who didn't even want to be a pastor in the first place. He wanted to be a monk living out in the wilderness. And he finds himself by the providence of God living in the city as the emperor comes into the city And then the emperor makes him the bishop of the capital city of Rome in the east. The reason why that's significant is because immediately after that, there becomes an uproar in the city concerning the resurgence of this this ancient battle between Arianism and the position held at Nicaea by Athanasius and, and Alexander of Alexandria and others. And so the emperor did exactly as Constantine had done before him, And he said, okay, we're going to convene another council. This time we're going to convene that council in Constantinople. And we're going to settle the issue for once and for all. We thought we had settled it back in 325, but we're going to settle it for once and for all. What does the church believe about the identity of Jesus? And so we 
talk next about the Council of Constantinople. It says 321 A.D. That was not when it took place. 381 A.D. was when it took place. I must have accidentally typed in a 2 instead of an 8 there. The, the Council of Constantinople was convened by Emperor Theodosius. And you'll take note that this was just less than a year after Gregory the theologian was installed as the bishop of Constantinople. Now, interestingly enough, the year is 381. This man named Arius, who had come up with this false doctrine, he had died almost 50 years earlier in 336 AD. But that just goes to show that false doctrine doesn't die as quickly as the people who develop it. There were enough supporters of Arius that this was still a very real threat to the church, just the same as it is true today. I mean, Joseph Smith has been dead for you know, some 200 years now almost, and still the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is stronger than it has ever been. Mormonism is stronger than it's ever been, even though the, uh, the early men who, uh, who propounded it are long dead and gone. Well, the same was true of Arianism. And thanks be to God again, um, it, it seems as if orthodoxy was the two-time champion now of Roman councils because the council... It didn't take it long to side with the decision that had been handed down in Nicaea, at Nicaea in 325. But furthermore, the council decided also to apply the same truth about Jesus to the Holy Spirit. Because as you can imagine, we haven't talked much about what the church believed about the Holy Spirit at this time. But as you can imagine, in between Nicaea and now, the church had really been wondering about who the Holy Spirit is. Is he also God? He is a spirit. I know that Jesus put on a body, but the Holy Spirit is purely spirit. Is he also God as the Father is God? Is he also God as Jesus is God? Well, the church decided to ratchet down its theology even tighter in order to apply the same truth about Jesus as being of the same substance with the Father now to the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I mention that is because it's here at Constantinople in 381 A.D., that the church ends up solidifying the position on the Trinity as you and I know it today. Because what do we typically say about God? That there is one God in three persons. That none of those persons are separate entities, God, but they are three persons of God. One God in three persons. That language goes all the way back to the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. As the church said that, that God exists in Trinity and trinity in unity, that he is one God, one in his essence, one in his usia, to go back to that word that we looked at last week. He is one usia in three persons. The word persons is hypostasis. Uh, you're, you may recall me mentioning that Jesus is simultaneously God and man. He is, he is in state 100% God and 100% man. That is what is known as the hypostatic Union, that he is both God and man equally. Again, we can't really wrap our mind around it. We just know that the Bible says that it is true. Well, the church went so far as to apply that theology to Father, Son, and Spirit to say that there is one God that we worship. And this one God exists, even though we cannot completely understand it, this one God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 